while you're doing that. So. <laughs> oh, it's just because the mouse is on. Yeah. Alrighty. Sorry for that delay. Batteries. Um, again, so we're on chapter 14 of Isaiah. Um, and this is, in a way, a continuation from chapter 13. If we remember last week, we talked about Babylon. Um, and this, is, this is an oracle against Babylon. We talked about how their pride is something that is going to cause them to become judged by God. Um, and so this, this concept continues forward, but there's a, a slight break with these first few verses. So we'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 4. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who are captors and rule over those who oppress them. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Um, And we're going to pause there because I know we're breaking up a verse, but um, we're going to get into the taunt in a second. Still, chapter 14 begins with what some scholars call an epilogue to chapter 13. In the previous chapter, again, we learned of the coming judgment against Babylon. The start of chapter 14 with 4 reflects on the past while also, in a way, looking forward to the future. Thus, God will be compassionate on his people and choose Israel, returning them to their own land. And since Babylon would eventually be used by God to send his people into exile in 586 BC, um, for God to have compassion on his people shows his deliverance from even the exile. This then leads to a reversal of fortunes, so to speak, where those who once caused the Israelites to be slaves will become slaves themselves, where the captors uh, captors will become the captives, and where the oppressors will be ruled over by the people. While this did not necessarily happen with Babylon, there is something to be said of the overarching understanding of God's sovereignty over the situation. Babylon and their gods, they're no more. God is the victorious one. Whatever power Babylon had, uh, had is, as we learned last week, only given by God and be, can, uh, can be taken away by God as well. And so when this is discussed, it's basically a reminding us of God's sovereignty, that he is greater than the Babylonians. Um, and so regardless of if they seem the most powerful nation on the earth, they're only powerful because God allows them to be. And eventually, if they are oppressive and they are um, tyrannical, God's going to judge them because of that. Um, And that's what we see here. And that's what this whole discussion of like becoming oppressors, becoming oppressed and all that is. This then leads to a reversal. Oh no, we talked about that. This then leads to peace for the people. Once the peace has been established and the people have rested from their oppression, they will taunt against the king of Babylon. The specific king of Babylon is not specified in this section, though it is likely meant to be an ambiguous term since the entire oracle against Babylon is against their pride. Uh, thus, in part, the king of Babylon may be just a personification of Babylonian pride or just really human pride. Um, and I do think that's the case, especially as we consider everything that's been said. So now we're going to get into the second half of verse 4 and start the, uh, this, this taunt. 
How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon sang, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. So again, this poem is meant to mock the Babylonian king who had lived in so much pride. It is separated into four stanzas starting with verse 4b through 8 as shown now. This stanza focuses on the earth. Indeed, we see how immediately the speakers have joy over the destruction of the proud. They had been oppressors against the people, and as such, their destruction is something which brings rejoicing. No more will their anger come against the people. The staff, likely representing the physical element, and the scepter, representing their monarch powers, uh, which they use to oppress and bring pain, they are broken by the Lord. As in most cases with Isaiah, there's a natural understanding brought forth. The earth itself is at rest and finally quiet. Nature then breaks forth into singing, thankful for the oppressors that are no more. There are two ways to understand this. The first is that nature itself, uh, which ancient rulers often claim to rule over, would be free from the tyrant and therefore rejoice. We can often forget nature itself groans in protestation against human iniquity, as we've read in Romans 9, um, how nature also eagerly awaits the sons of God. Actually, that's Romans 8. So the peace that comes with God does affect nature also. The second is that this figurative of the people, uh, it is really the people who are the trees who were once cut down, but now finds deliverance. The former uh, seems more likely, though, either way works in context. So um, you can take that as you may. So now we come to verse 9 through 14. No, 9 through 11. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you, When you come, it rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones. All who were kings of the nations, all of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. We now jump from the earth to Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. As such, when the Babylonian king has been broken and died, all of Sheol comes to greet this king. Indeed, the text describes leaders of the earth, but we get a glimpse of them as they are described as shades almost immediately. In the world of the living, such a rising from kings would normally reflect a reverence for the Babylonian king. Instead of reverence, however, we find the truth. They do not praise him for his greatness or his accomplishments on the earth. Instead, they declare that he too is like they. They who were once as proud as he are weak, and so is he. In his time on the earth, the king had believed that he was great and mighty and powerful, and yet none of his greatness could keep him from becoming a mere shade in Sheol. This leads to the concluding verse of the stanza, which reflects on his funeral. He had been dressed in such fine garment for his funeral. He had songs being played on his behalf. But where was the procession leading? Despite the fancy clothes, it all leads to the same place. A bed of maggots and worms for covers. Such splendor has no purpose for those who are dead. 
Now we come to verses 12 through 15 for the third stanza. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. For you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. All right, so this one's an interesting stanza, isn't it? Because we all know it, know this stanza very well. Um, and because of that, these verses are very interesting. Oftentimes, we associate this with the fall of Satan. Um, yet contextually, it appears that this is not the case. Because in context, we're still talking about Babylon. Despite this, there is one element which does resemble the devil. And that is his pride. Just as the devil was cast from heaven because of his pride, the same is true of humanity who live in pride. Thus, and, and, and this is how I, how I kind of bring it together in my head. It may not be specifically talking about the devil. I don't think it is, personally. I think that stanza-wise, when it comes to the poem, it's all about this prideful element of the Babylonian king. But the devil resembles that very well, doesn't he? And so you can associate it with that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we're talking about in context. Um, as such, the description of the Babylonian king as fallen from heaven and morning star show his great pride. Though he had been great upon the earth and though many had considered him a godlike figure, in the end, he has died and become a shade. The Babylonians conquered a great swath of nations and became the victors of the known world at the time prior to their fall. Verse 13 is interesting as it shows the genuine pride taking place in the Babylonian king's heart. Despite being a mere mortal, he believed that he could ascend the heavens and sit in God's place. Indeed, the way Isaiah depicts the individual as to sit on the mount of the assembly may represent the understanding of Canaanite deities who would meet at Mount Zaphon and, or Cassius, similar to Mount Olympus with the Greek uh, pantheons. And they would come together, all the gods, and they would discuss human affairs and their own affairs because they were crazy, um, to put it mildly. Regardless, the king believed he could become just like them, rising to the same status as God Most High, not just among the gods, but the highest God himself. He will be just like God. Yet this is not what occurred. Despite intentions and prestige, in the end, the exact opposite happens for the individual. Instead of the pride of ascension, he suffers the humiliation of descending into the place of the dead. He becomes nothing more than a shade among other shades. So now we come to verses 16 through 21. And this is the longest part of this poem. Slash taunt. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land, you have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. 
Now we come to the final stanza of the poem. The ending of the king leaves onlookers in awe, not of his greatness, but of his downfall. They see him in death and wonder aloud, this, this is the person who caused so much fear in us? This is the individual who desolated the world? This is the one who was unmerciful and caused fear and chaos? He who destroyed homes and would not allow peoples to return to their home? This is the same man? In a twist of irony, though this king had subdued so many and caused so much devastation, he himself will not be able to return home either. We see how the other kings are laid to rest in their tombs, a way of saying like a home. But this king in so much pride is cast out from his own grave. Instead of having the grandeur of his rich tomb, he will be like one slain in battle, heaped together in a mass grave. Interestingly enough, the judgment which comes against the king is not focused on what he has done to foreign nations, but his own. Pride is destructive not only to the individual, but to those around the individual as well. It can infest individuals and societies. As such, when a king or a leader fails, it will have a devastating impact on the people and the land. And we've seen this over and over again. Remember in Genesis, the same thing happened um, where Pharaoh, when he took Sarah, what happened to Pharaoh's household? They all got struck. Um, And so we see how when a leader fails, it affects everybody. As such, the hope is that not only would the individual be destroyed, but the complete memory of him will be destroyed as well. That his sons would not inherit power because of their tyrant father establishes not an eternal throne, but one which is broken and from which a new dynasty would emerge that would involve someone else who is the leader. Thus the history of this king would become no more. Or further even, just as the king's dynasty had no future, neither does pride or those who follow pride. Um, Now we come to verses 22 through 23. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off Babylon's name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. And I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. Now we come to the uh, really quick final conclusion for the Oracle of Babylon. These verses end the Babylonian Oracle. Um, What we... What will be the end of Babylon is God himself. He will be the one who ends the dynasty, ends the nation. He will cause the proud to fall. Babylon, though great, is not greater than God. He will return it to a state before human inhabitants. Just as individuals broom up and sweeps up a mess, so it is with God and the Babylon, the proud. And this, again, says something about God's power and sovereignty over the nations. Um, The fact that he can just sweep them up when they've been so disobedient. So, the main point of these verses are to show the results of pride. The particular, the Babylonians, were a proud city-state turned nation that would conquer much of the Middle East and really, again, the known world at the time. Eventually, though, God would cast down the proud Babylonians and show that he is the king. No human person can replace God regardless of the inclinations of their heart. Um, And that's really the point of all this, and I hope that we're getting this point. So, I actually have two application points. Can you believe it? Crazy. I've just been focusing on one, but I can't not do this one. Something which many commentators find hard to understand, and maybe even you're reading this and kind of having a hard time understanding it, is this rejoicing 
aspect of the poem. Some wonder how it can relate to the New Testament where we are encouraged to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek. We are encouraged to bless those who curse you. So the question is what gives, right? How can there be so much rejoicing over the downfall of someone um, and, and, and again, the taunt of it? And I suspect much of this comes from our lack of understanding when it comes to the gospel itself. It can often be the case that we forget that God does not merely pardon those who have faith in Christ. It isn't as though God looks at us and declares us holy, good, and righteous without any judgment against our sin. Though it may seem that way, that is far and away from what we find in the scriptures concerning Christ. In Christ, we find our salvation from God's judgment through faith in Christ's blood, who atones us. As such, justice does happen. And in the gospel, justice is done through the death of Jesus. It isn't God turning a blind eye toward us. He knows our sins, knows our brokenness, and yet redeems us despite ourselves. Thus, while it is true we are called to love our enemies and to bless them, it is also true that we are to have joy in justice. In this world filled with sin, we are to rejoice over the fact that God is a just God. He will not stand to let evildoers go unpunished forever. In this way, the poem provides us two things. The first is that there can and should be rejoicing when justice occurs in our society and in the world. We can rejoice when someone like Hitler comes to an end because we know that God's justice has come upon those doing evil. We can rejoice when individuals who commit heinous acts against other humans are brought to justice. And I didn't write this in this, in this uh, sermon, though, but something that happened just recently. Have you guys heard about what happened in um, Georgia? In Georgia, U.S. Marshals just rescued 25 kids, 25 children at least, who were part of the sex slave trade and who were basically human trafficking. Rejoice! <laughs> Justice has occurred. We should be joyful when that happens and that ceases in our world. We should be happy when those who have done this to children are brought to justice and we should applaud justice. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, The second thing that it reminds us of, even if such individuals should go free in this life, if they remain lacking in faith and remain unrepentant from their sins, then they will not escape judgment even in death. For in death they will find the just rewards for their sinfulness, their cruelty, the fact that they were willing to hurt and to hinder rather than obey and cultivate love and blessing and seek God in humility. In all of this, um, it honestly reminds me of a song written by Ben Shive and performed by Andrew Peterson. I'm not going to sing it, but I want to read the lyrics to you because it's, it's really beautiful in my mind, one of my favorite songs. Every stone that makes you stumble and cuts you when you fall. Every serpent here that strikes your heel to curse you when you crawl. The king of love one day will crush them all. And every sad seduction and every clever lie, every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, the king of love will break them by and by. And you will rise up in the end. You will rise up in the end. I know the night is cruel, but the day is coming soon when you will rise up in the end. If a thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not the father see this? Would not his anger burn? Would he not repay the tyrant in the day of his return? Await, await the day of his return. Because he will rise up in the end. He will rise up in the end. 
I know you need a savior. He's patient in his anger, but he will rise up in the end. And when the stars come crashing to the sea, when the high and mighty fall down on their knee, we'll see the sun descending in the sky. The chains of death will fall around your feet and you will rise up in the end. You will rise up in the end. You will rise up in the end. I know you will. So we have hope. We have hope in the future knowing this. We have hope knowing that evil will not win. God will triumph. And we can and should rejoice in the fact that justice, true justice, will come by God's hand. Thus we learn patience knowing God himself is patient in his anger. But his anger will not be abated forever. We look forward then to that day when the Lord will end the tyrant found in humanity. When that day comes, we will rejoice in song knowing that justice has been done by his mighty hand. For now, we remain patient in troubles and trust that though we may find tyrants in this world, God is greater than any tyrant that we encounter. Now this leads to the second point to discuss, and it's again this concept of pride. Um, We talked a lot about it last week, uh, and I know, but here again it's personified (laughs) And this Babylonian king. And then shown it's the result of pride. It's all interesting to me. It leaves us with a question. You know, why is humanity so proud? And now the simplest answer to this is sin. The way sin works in us is to corrupt. As such, when we sin, we continue to feed the corruption which permeates all of who we are. Thus our hearts, our minds, and souls, and strength all become corrupted. It causes us to have cognitive malfunction in which we honestly believe that we are greater than we really are. Even to the point of causing us to believe that we can become God himself. We could critique the Babylonian king depicted, but the truth is, we would be remiss if we thought it was just the king and the leader of nations who suffer from pride. The truth is, it has been with us from the beginning. We remember in Genesis 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He made the woman. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. We won't spend too much time on this because we have a sermon on it (laughs) on our website. But we consider how... And what it is that pushes Eve to the breaking point. And what is it? It's that she will be like God. To be like God. To decide our own wills. Our own lives. To have authority. Greater than any other authority in who we are. Such a temptation is great. But the results of following such a temptation is always the same. It always leads to death. Death for ourselves. And often, very often... Death and all the relationships we have as well. This is the greatest example of pride. That though God exists, we should seek to usurp him. 
We honestly believe we know better for our lives, for the world around us. Instead of trusting in God and seeking to understand his ways, knowing he knows all things, we choose to become our own kings and queens, believing in our finiteness we are the greatest. Yet it always leads to the same course. If we rely on ourselves, then the result will be not greatness. It will not lead to a better society or a better life. It will not lead to anything other than everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. It will always lead to further pain and destruction. If, however, we should follow God, loving him with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, and if we should love our neighbors as ourselves, if we should seek to glorify him in all of our lives, then we will find the greatness found in him. As we saw last week, however, this requires humility. Something we find in 1 Peter. We find, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to de- someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, humility. If today's text should inspire us to anything, it should be this. That we would seek to be humble before our God, knowing that he is God and we are knowing this. The repercussions for the proud are always the same. Death and devastation. Instead of such things, let us seek what is good, knowing that our God is truly great and mighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, and all-loving. Let us not seek to usurp his rightful place as Lord of all, but let us be his ever-faithful subjects, desiring his good, pleasing, and perfect will above all else. Now, naturally, this leads us to the gospel of Christ. And there's actually two different ways it does. But first, we have to talk about origins. Because if we don't talk about the beginning, then none of it will make sense. Um, And again, we're all created in the image of God. Every person, every human person, male or female, no matter who you are, you are made in God's image. And this is a beautiful and blessed thing. No matter what, you have worth. No matter what, God has a plan. Really, he does. He knows you. You are known by God. Better than anyone else ever could, God knows each of us. And it's a wonderful thing to consider that he loves you so much as his creation. Now the problem comes, if we take that idea and then say, well, then I am God. (laughs) I know. (laughs) If we say to ourselves, you know what, I don't need God anymore. He's created me so well, look at me. Look how wonderful I'm created. Look at how good I am at all these different things. Look how wise I am. Look how strong I am. Look at how easily I can subject others to my will. The fall has devastating consequences. And in today's text, we see the results of the fall as this king of Babylon, this pride, is willing to subject everything else Creating deserts where there used to be a lush land. Why? Because he's proud. Pride does this to us all. 
Sin does this to us all. And the more that we go into sin, the more it crushes, the more it destroys. And so the question is, how on earth can we not deserve judgment? Because if we are sinners, then we deserve judgment for our sins. We deserve justice just like the Babylonian king deserved justice. Just like Isaiah has been saying over and over and over again to the Israelites. Hey, God's going to judge you because this is just for him to judge you. You're sinners. Turn. Repent. Recognize God is God and you're not. But we don't. And so that's the question. Again, how can we find redemption in the this case. And we find redemption in this text at the very beginning of what we read. Do you remember what we read? God takes his people out of that punishment. God takes them away from the Babylonian exile. God is the one who judges the king, the tyrant. God does it. And he has done it through his son, Jesus Christ. That through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in time, space, history, and flesh, we have redemption for our sins and we have redemption from the wrath of God. It's what he's done. He did it. It's not about you doing it. It's him. And that's why we're called to faithfulness. Humility. Because we can't do it on our own. But God can and he has. And for those who choose to not turn in repentance and faith, the result is the same thing. You will be a shade. You will be nothing. But for those who have faith in Christ, for those who give themselves over to the recognition that they are powerless to stand against sin and injustice, to stand against the awfulness in their hearts, for those who recognize they can't do it on their own, They may be brought low in this life, but they will be exalted after. And that's the promise that we hold on to, don't we? We may struggle. We may sin. It may be a lot easier to go a different route in this life. It might be a lot easier to be proud and say, you know, I'm not going to follow God. I'm going to go a different route. I'm going to gain more money and that's going to be my God. It's a lot easier to live that life. But it leads to death. Whereas if we follow God and we love our neighbors and we seek to honor God in all that we do, may not lead to easiness all the time. But it leads to life. So I encourage all of you to recognize what we've read today about this, this personified pride in the king of Babylon. To recognize that it's no different for this king as it was for Adam and Eve being tempted by the devil who was also proud himself. You know, and that's the truth of it, right? The truth is, that was going to experience the same thing. (laughs) He may seem powerful today, but he's going to experience that too. Um, That's why I think it's so easy for us to look at this text and to think, oh, well, this is about the devil. Eh, Same thing is going to happen, yes. He will be judged. He will become nothing when it comes to power. But so will we. Let's not negate ourselves in this. But let's rejoice in the fact that God is powerful and he is faithful and he is strong. And it's in his name that we go forward. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much the fact that you are enthroned, that you are above all nations, you are above all kings, you are the king of kings, and that no power is as mighty as you, no power is as strong as you, nothing can compare with our God. And so, Lord, as we continue forward in this life, we ask that you would remain with us. And that you would give us strength to be faithful, to glorify your holy name now and forevermore. May you alone be praised in all that we do. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.